All right. Hey, Rockbridge, I hope everybody is doing great as you gather in any of our six physical locations or online. Hey, before we jump into the message, we just want to stop and honor all of our veterans, those who have have served. Many of us have relatives and friends who are serving. And so I I just want to ask at all of our campuses, if you have served or been a veteran in our armed services, if you don't mind and you're able to, if you would stand up, if you're watching online, you can just put in the chat that you served in the Navy or Army or Marine Corps or wherever. And uh, look, can we just honor those uh, men and women, all of our locations on and online as well with just a round of applause and thank them for their service and uh, just incredible that we get to stop once a year and honor the the millions and millions past present who have served in our nation's military all right thank you and uh, you can be seated so we're navigating forward in ripple effect right longest sermon series in the history of Rockbridge as we're verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in particular we're in first Corinthians Today, we mark a shift, and and Paul's been dealing with a lot of issues in the church, and starting in chapter 11, which we're going to be today, he begins to deal with issues and problems uh, and, and confusing areas that arise in the context of worship, in particular, corporate worship, when the church gathers together, just like you and I are here uh, today, to worship God and, and, and speak to God and, and relate to God. Now, today, the best way to get into what we're going to talk about today, and I assure you it is a doozy, and, and we're going to just stick to the integrity of Scripture. We believe as Christ followers that, that God's authority, God's sufficiency of grace, and, and everything we need to know to live God's will and everything we need to know to be saved and, and to become the men and women God has called us to become is found in Scripture. So we're going to stick to it find the principles in it, and seek to live them out and apply them in our lives for His glory. So it's a doozy, but the best way to get into the conversation, I I think, is is through one of the big questions that every human being asks, and that's the question of who am I? And and this is a a struggle for many of us, for most of us. Uh, It it can change. You know, sometimes, you know, we're defined by our parents, then we're defined by what we do. Sometimes we feel like we've been defined by what we have done. Or sometimes it's like, man, I have to be who the world, who the crowd, who other people tell me to be. So all of us have to answer and, and wrestle and seek to kind of come up with an answer to this question of who am I? And and this is kind of why people do dumb things. It's why we have midlife crisis. It's why, you you know, when we experience like a loss of a job, a loss of health, a loss of a a significant relationship, it can kind of cause us to come back and, and ask this question again of who am I? And a lot of times our answer to this question is not settled. It's a search. Our answer to this question is not secure. It can be threatened or easily threatened by, by factors of circumstance or factors in the economy or by what someone might do or might say about us. And so as we get into chapter 11, it's important that we understand who am I. And I'm going to give you the biblical answer to this question on, on the front end, and then we're going to dive deep. Here we go. If you were to say, and we were to say, God, who is Matt Evans? Who are we? Who am I? Here's the answer in, in summative form. The biblical answer would be that we are made in the image of God. And as made in the image of God, that gives us incredible dignity, value, and worth, and potential. But we have rebelled, and we've rejected often God's 
get the identity God gives us, the way that God has put forth for us. So there's dignity and rebellion all underneath that, and which explains some brokenness and things in the world. We're also born again, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're born again solely through the work of Jesus. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Jesus is perfect and sufficient to be the one that we can experience being born again and come back into the forever family of God. And we do that by exercising faith and repentance. Faith in Jesus, repentance from our rebellion against him. And then finally, as Christ followers, as the church, we're empowered to live the life we were designed to live in the image of God by the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul has talked about that in Corinthians, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's where we live lives of purpose and lives of obedience. So, so let me say this in, in, a, in a summary. I am who God created me to be and died for me to become. And I want to ask all of us, all our campuses, even online, if you would say that with me. I think there's power in speaking truth, in confessing truth, uh, because you've, you've bought a lie in, at some point in your journey about who you are, who you're supposed to be. You've been deceived or deluded sometimes about who you are, who you're supposed to be. I know that's a big part of my redemptive story. So I think we need to affirm and confess out loud with conviction this is who we are. So let's say this together, Rockbridge. I am who God created me to be and died for me to become. Praise the Lord. That's timeless. That's changeless. There's peace. There's security. There, there, there's, uh, there's confidence in the statement that you just made. Now, we're going to keep unpacking that because there's a problem. And the problem when it comes to our identity is our own self-perception. Have you ever just not felt good about yourself? H have you ever maybe had an inflated view of yourself and been full of yourself, right? H have you ever just kind of perceived yourself in a way that didn't align maybe with who you thought you should be and you kind of, you know, got depressed or you got discouraged, and, and, and sometimes self-perception, like our feelings, can tell us things, and they may not be true things, but they feel so powerful that, you know, we feel a certain way about ourselves, and sometimes we feel really good about ourselves, and, and, we're, we're, and, and sometimes we feel really bad about ourselves. And so the challenge of self-perception creeps in to our identity battle, to our trying to answer the question of who am I. And oftentimes our self-perception goes against this confession that we just made, and that's where there's tension and confusion, and we get disoriented, and things go haywire from there. What we need to understand about self-perception is this. There's danger in it. The prophet Jeremiah says this way, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. So nobody's lied to you more than you. And desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So when your self-perception or your heart tells you who you are or who you think you should be or your feelings, I just don't feel good about myself or, or I, I feel this way, you, you have to question that based upon what God has said. And the alternative, though, is instead of trusting so much our self-perception because of this truth in this verse in Jeremiah 17, we should trust 
the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever, Isaiah 26, 4, because in the Lord, the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. That means if I base my identity on the truth of who God says I am, created me to be, and died for me to become, I have an identity that is safe, secure, satisfying, eternal. There's no midlife crisis. There's no wilting when bad things happen to me. If I have a bad day on the athletic field or get a bad grade on the test or don't close the deal or get laid off from my job, it hurts, but it doesn't change me because I stand upon the rock of trusting in the Lord in regards to who He says I am, who He created me to be, and who He died for me to become. Now, with that understanding, let's jump right in to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start with verse 2. Here's what he says. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Now, when he says this word traditions, we don't need to think of something man-made. These traditions that he's speaking of and the connotation there is authority of truth. It's scripture. It's, it's Paul in his apostolic authority passing on truth and teachings that align with Christ, that align with the Old Testament canon of the Jewish people that we still have in our Bible as Christ followers, all 66 books that now have become the scripture. That type of authority, you hold to that. That's what he's saying. But I want you to know, and now he starts talking about something that gets controversial back then and today. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the head, two, two ways to view that word, there's biblical scholars disagree, source or authority. Both can work. And the man is the head of the woman. Source, man was, woman was created out of man, Genesis 1 and 2, or authority. Either one, but there's some debate about which one Paul means. And God is the head of Christ. Now, so right there, this, this kind of is offensive to a lot of people, and women get confused, and men have used verses like this to kind of tell women to just be quiet and submit and all that kind of stuff. And, and are women inferior or superior to men? Let's, let's make sure we see this, okay? God is the head of Christ. So he's talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is God exists in three persons, or God has distinctions within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's submission in the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits and, and seeks to glorify the Son, but they're all equal and they're all God in the Godhead of the Trinity. So when he says God is the head of Christ, he's not saying God the Father is superior to the Son. He's just talking about order, distinction, and how these relation, this relationship within the Godhead works together, and that we're created as an image bearer of that God, the triune Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. So it should make sense that our relationships have order, that our relationships reflect the God in whose image we are made. So the key themes just that pop out right here are this, creation, how we're created, sex or gender, how, the, how our maleness or femaleness relate and are important parts of who we are, and the Trinity, in particular, the distinctions of the Trinity. So now we get to start kind of going to that question of who am I and getting deep into understanding of I am who God created me to be and who Christ died for me to become. Let's get deep and understand that. The first principle is this. Our identity 
is found under the authority that God has established and within the order that God has established. That you and I cannot know ourselves truly as we are, as we were designed, without understanding that God is the God of order, that God is authoritative, that God as our creator puts some limits on us biologically. He puts some limits on us in terms of morals. He puts some limits on us that we have to honor, okay? We cannot just say, well, I'm a fish. I'm going to go live in the lake today. We don't have gills, and that would cause problems, okay? We have a biology that was all of that is a part of God's design and under God's authority. So when we start getting confused about who we are, when there's chaos around the human condition and human nature, and even the search for identity, those things are not of God. They are satanic in the disorder they cause to our soul, to our families, to our society. And and one of my big prayers for today and this weekend is that we would understand wherever you're coming from, there is a beautiful grace in receiving the gift of I am who God created me to be and Christ died for me to become. Now, the second principle that's timeless that begins to emerge in this section of Corinthians is this, that our maleness, manhood, men, and our femaleness, womanhood, being a woman, are part of the good. God declared good when he made them male and female, Genesis 1.27, part of the good of being made in God's image, that being a man and a woman, a male, a female, are part of our identity as created and given by God, and even more, being male and female and how male and female work together, fit together under the scope of God's authority and design and order, they're an echo of the gospel. So it's not just biology. It's not just you know, different, you know, that we, that men have a different, have some differences biologically and women have some differences biologically. It it is deeper than that. It's reflective of who God is. It's reflective of what God has done in the gospel, that, that men and women and their relationship is way more than just about procreation. It's way more than just about how the, the human sex organs work together. It is reflective of what God knew he was going to do through the blood of his son to create the church, that the church and Christ fit together, that, that God and the, and the Trinity works together. All of that is contained in what it means to be male and female. Listen to how Paul says it in another book of the Bible, Ephesians 5. He says, as the scripture says, he talks about marriage, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but is an illustration, a picture, an echo of the way Christ and the church are one. So man and woman become one in marriage. In Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we become one with him. It's called union. It's joining with him, together with him. And all of that is baked into creation. And all of that is part of who we are. So so we need to understand something. 
biological differences between men and women are designed by God, and they have spiritual meaning. So, so don't buy into the randomness of evolutionary worldview. Don't buy into the gender confusion. Don't buy into, well, I, I, I'm a male biologically, but I think like, feel like, act like. No, you and I have to understand we are who God created us to be and died for us to become. And there's freedom when we receive that and understand that. So, so here's where we have to go back to self-perception. Because self-perception, you know, you may not, you know, self-perception can attack us in a lot of different ways. I don't feel like God could love someone like me. Uh, I feel like what I've done is too great for God to ever, you know, accept me back or bring me back. We have to understand this. We dare not put human psychology over human biology. And neither can be placed over Scripture. Scripture says, and I'm going to summarize you are who God says you are. You are who God created you to be and died for you to become. And, and so where Paul is sort of going and, and where this all leads is we need anchors, steadfast, immovable anchors for our identities. So many of us, our identities are not anchored. They are subjective to the whims of society of circumstance, of unstable emotions. They are not built upon the rock that is Christ, and it wrecks havoc with us in terms of what? P uh, insecurity, anxiety, excessive fear, lack of courage, and lack of freedom, and lack of joy. So we just need to understand God did not design it. He's a God of order and authority. Anchors, this is who you are timeless, changeless, and sustainable in the storms of life. Now he gets specific in what's happening or what he's concerned about happening in worship services at the church at Corinth. He's, and he starts talking about praying and prophesying. He says, so every man needs, who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies, prophesies excuse me, with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to leave her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Now, this is not telling you if you didn't wear a hat to church, ladies, you need to go shave your head. Not saying that at all. So let me stop and, and give a little bit of instruction about Scripture and how we interpret it, okay? Every book of the Bible, every single one of them, was written by a human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a particular audience in a particular historical context in a particular time and place. So you have to understand the context that's going on. And if you don't understand the context, you can misinterpret Scripture and you can find the wrong application from that Scripture. So what we do, and part of what I spend a considerable amount of my time each week doing, is getting underneath this historical context and understanding it and then finding the timeless principle that applies to all believers for all time. To find the timeless truth, the timeless insight, the godly conviction that applies in all churches, not just first century Roman Empire, but 21st century in the United States. So 
Let me back up and share with you the context, okay? In the eastern Mediterranean region of the Roman Empire, women wore hats, okay? Men typically did not. And, and so Paul is saying, hey, when you come to worship, we need to reflect who we are. And, and, and culture and context does inform that or shape that. Okay, so you know, in our context, we would say, you know what, men don't wear dresses. That's just not what men typically do in, in, in our context. Now, if you're in Scotland and, and men wear a kilt, you know, that's different, right? But that's kind of, that's what he's talking about. So we got to understand that specific context. Additionally, often to, there, there's some biblical scholars who believe that a woman who didn't have her hair, head covered and maybe a woman who had really short hair, some, some scholars believe that's what prostitutes look like. And we know what Paul's already said about sexuality and marriage and prostitutes. We said that a couple chapters ago. You can go back and catch those sermons. So he's saying, look, here's what we need to understand. Worship, corporate worship, has a particularly important function between the now and the not yet. The now of where we are in history. God has not restored everything to its original design of Genesis 1 and 2. God has not inaugurated fully the kingdom of Jesus. So believers live between what God has done now on the cross, but what God will, has not yet done, but will do at the second coming. And worship previews, reflects that. So here's the principle that we can say that's timeless. So worship reflects and represents what God established in creation as a designer and a God of order, and that's our maleness and femaleness part included in that, and worship reflects and represents what God is going to or is in the process of restoring in salvation, okay? So worship, part of worship reminds us of who we are and whose we are, and who we are becoming and one day shall be. In other words, I am who God says I am. I am who God created me to be and died for me to become. So isn't it true you walk out of here and the minute we walk out of here and life happens and all the truth and all the grace and all the things that we felt like, man, I sensed God, God spoke to me, God blessed me, I was reminded of the gospel, I'm reminded of who I am, and then you go out and Monday's terrible and you come home and you're like, how was your day? It was terrible and I feel like a failure or I feel defeated. That's your self-perception, but that's not who you are. So six days later, you come in here and worship reminds you of who you are and whose you are and who you're becoming and one day shall be, right? Because there's a fight for our identity. That's why it's such a big question. So what Paul is saying is, look, if this is what worship is, if worship reflects and represents what God established in creation is restoring in salvation, reminds us of who we are, whose we are, and what we're, who we're becoming, then men and women in worship, men need to look like men, and women need to look like women. The external needs to match the spiritual and align with integrity to what God did in creation and is restoring in salvation. That's what he's saying. And that's going to look slightly or significantly different based upon your culture and your context. First century, 21st century America, it's going to look different, but there needs to be no doubt. Men look like men and women look like women because that's part of who they are as created by God. 
He continues to unpack this a little bit more. He says, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. He's not saying women or not. He's just speaking right now just to men. So too, though, a woman is the glory of man. When Go read, and what he's referring to is the creative act. When God created Eve out of Adam, and Adam's asleep, he wakes him up, and Adam sees Eve, and there's this beautiful, it's in, in, in the original Hebrew, he sings to her, or he speaks poetry to her, which is romantic, it's glorious. He realizes this is what was missing in creation. This makes good what was not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So that's what he's referring to. So to woman is the glory of man. And then he talks about creation. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. That's how God originally created the woman in, in the garden in Genesis 1. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. She was created to be what? The helper, to complete what was not right or not good in creation. She was created to complement, right? Men and women fit together, spiritually, biologically, and missionally for the purpose that God has given us. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, And then he says this phrase, not a lot of agreement about this, because of the angels. My best interpretation of this is there's a lot of disagreement, but that there's some understanding based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which tell us a lot about Jewish communities and and worship in the first century and Jewish Christian and Christian communities, and that there's some understanding that angels are believed to be present in worship. And there's a, there's a quote in 1 Peter 1.12 that says, angels longed to look into these things, and these things are the unveiling, the unraveling of the implications and ramifications and the beauties that come from the gospel. So angels are looking and they want to see ordered worship reflective of the perfect will of God and us reflecting the image of God as male and female. Then he goes on and he says, look, unless there's confusion, he said, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. They complement. They're equal. They work together, go together biologically, spiritually, and beyond. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. Now he's talking about childbearing and the beauty of that. And all things come from God. So, So what's he saying now? He's saying, look, creation testifies about and celebrates male and female as part of the order, the authority, and the beauty that all come from God. And because creation does this, worship ought to do it as well. And worship is contextualized. If you you went with me on a trip to Ethiopia, and you went to a worship service with us, with our partner church, in Awasa, Ethiopia, worship there would look and feel and sound different, but the truth of worship would be the same because it's contextual and it's based upon time and space and people, but it still must align with creation and the gospel and where God is taking things. So let me say it this way. Male and female, distinct, just like there's distinction in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, complementary, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together, complement each other, male and female work together, fit together for greater purposes, and they're interdependent upon one another. 
So male and female are these things, and we see that in creation in the Trinity, in Christ and the church. Christ, the church was created out of Christ. The church submits to Christ. The church wants to look like Christ. Christ fills the church with his spirit. It's all in there. And male and female are a part of that beautifully. Male and female are part of the story God is telling, the gospel story of redemption and restoration, and part of the glory he is displaying. That women uniquely can display the glory of God in a way men cannot and vice versa. That's why God did not just create them male in the image of God he made them. He did not just create them female in the image of God he created them. He created them male and female in the image of God he created them. And after every day of creation, what does the word say? And the Lord saw that it was good part of who we are. Who are we? We are who God says we are, who God created us to be and died for us to become. He closes and he says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then he uses, he's used an argument from creation. He's used the Trinity. He's used the traditions or the scriptural authority that he has as an apostolic writer of scripture. He's used the gospel. Now he uses nature, all to affirm the distinction, the uniqueness, and the beauty of being male and female made in the image of God. So does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Again, some of this is contextualized, but he's basically saying that there's distinctions in how men and women look, that women have a, a greater ability than men to grow long hair. And he's just saying that even nature shows us there's differences, and those differences are beautiful, and they're designed under the order and the authority of God to represent and reflect who we are, and represent and reflect all that God does in the gospel to represent and reflect the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. For her hair is given to her as a covering. So here's what he says. If anyone wants to argue about this, if anyone has to, wants to debate this, there's no debate because we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Not up for discussion. Men are men made in the image of God. Women are women, made in the image of God. They need to look like that and act like that because it's way bigger than biology. It's theology. It's a story of glory that God has been telling and designing from the beginning until the final consummation when Christ comes back for the church, his bride. So let's unpack this in terms of identity. Our identity has been announced in creation, male and female. I am. Who am I? I am who God created me to be. Our identity has been redeemed in salvation. I am who God created me to be and who Christ died for me to become, which is a restoration of that original relationship that Adam and Eve had in the garden that was lost. Remember the temptation? You'll be like God if you eat that. That's an identity temptation. Who you are is not good enough. Who God made you to be is not good enough. What what God has provided for you to do in terms of purpose is not good enough. Go over here and find an identity. Make an identity apart from God. It brought hell on earth. 
So it has to be redeemed in salvation. I am who God declares me to be in his word. And this trumps my feelings. It trumps culture. It trumps my self-perception. And it has to be received in surrender. Meaning, I, I firmly believe there's a, there's a period in every Christ follower's life. And it doesn't always happen in salvation because some of this has to get unpacked and the grace of God has to go deep into our souls where we have these identity, who am I battles. But at some point, I really believe God calls all of us just to surrender and quit trying to make a name for ourselves, quit trying to be someone we're not, Quit trying to be it, who the crowd tells us to be or culture tells us to be. Quit trying to be who our feelings tell us to be and be who God has created, redeemed, and declared us to be and surrender to that. And when we do that, then here's how we live. If I know who I am, then here's how I live. That the beauty and glory of who we are in Christ, it will never be known. Until we learn to give instead of, our take, instead of take. So here's what this means. We give of who we are in Christ. We give of who we are as men in Christ. We give of who we are as women in Christ. Tremendous freedom, tremendous clarity, no confusion there. Now, I'm just going to summarize those things briefly. We could do sermon after sermon of these, but for men... I believe when men are at their best in Christ and they're not trying to take but to give, here's what men give, sacrificial love and spiritual direction. That's what headship is all about. Men go first in sacrificial love and men provide spiritual direction. <coughs> now, women... I, I, th I got this from a, a female blogger, and uh, I, I can get you that. You can email me if you want to read the blog. I'll send it to you. But women, transformational presence. God made everything good, right? But there was a not good. The presence of the woman moved it from good to great. It's almost that thing like, you know, when, when, you, when your mom gets sick, man, everybody still eats, sort of. You know, life sort of goes on, but it ain't the same, right? Mom gets better. Oh, thank God, mom's better, right? Transformational presence. Eve shows up on the scene of history. She makes Adam better. She makes the mission that God gave Adam able to be completed if they had remained faithful to who they were in Christ. I don't know who you think you are this morning. But I want you to hear who God says you are. And if today is the day that you, you say, hey, I want to surrender to him. I want to become fully surrendered. I want to be a son. I want to be his daughter. And you say yes to what Christ has done for you. And you walk out of here in freedom. But for everybody here today, because as soon as you walk out of here, turn your computer off or whatever, there's a battle that's going to attack you that tells you what you need to be to be happier who you need to be to have more people like you. You need to go do this to feel better about yourself. And I want you to silence all that for just a minute. And Holy Spirit, we're inviting you to be here. Would you speak to your people right here? Because here's who we are. God, we are who you say we are. We are who you created us to be and who you died for us to become.
male and female, he created them. And in the image of God, he made them. Let's pray together. God, I just think right now, I want to capture what I believe would be the sentiment in our hearts. And that would just be gratitude. Thank you for creating us. And God, you don't make mistakes. We make mistakes and pursue mistaken identities, but you don't. So God, would you call us back to who we are as revealed in creation, redeemed and restored in salvation, declared in your word, and I pray receive today in humble yet beautiful submission. So thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.